Hey, it's Sarah. On this episode, I chat with two-time Super Bowl champion Chris Long about what it was like to go from playing in relative obscurity for eight years in St. Louis to winning the Super Bowl back-to-back with the Patriots and Eagles. Also, how he often got confused for Jake Long and his brother Kyle, the work he's doing in the name of social justice, and his strategies for dealing with disagreements on social media. Please take a minute to subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you can, rate it, of course, five stars, and leave a review. Before we get to Chris Long, I want to tell you about a new radio show with my old co-host, Jason Fitz. Every morning, Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman debate the hottest stories of the day as only they can on First Take. Now, every weekday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern, the debates expand further as Fitz brings you First Take, your take on ESPN Radio. Agree? Disagree? This show is about your thoughts and your reactions. You get to be part of the discussion. It's First Take, your take with Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio and ESPN News. And, of course, you can subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast of that show as well. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Chris Long, and I just solved my dilemma of Twitter. I have this uh, revolutionary um, new idea that actually harkens back to the Stone Ages where I used to tweet from a laptop computer and I, I deleted the app from my phone and I am now a laptop tweeter only. Okay, love this, right? The commish gets to take a break. I get to let someone else handle the dilemma solving for once. And Chris's idea is actually one that we heard right here on the podcast from recent guest Cal Newport who has authored a couple books on working more efficiently, learning how to digitally detox and handle your relationship with your phone, which, as he said, should not be a relationship, right? It should be a tool, not a companion. Uh, if you're interested, you can go back to that episode with Cal Newport from a couple months ago. Check it out. Lots of great tips for weaning yourself off apps that don't serve you. And a lot of reminders of the things that you don't do, learn, read, experience every time you choose to get lost aimlessly in your phone instead. So, hey, thanks, Chris, for solving the dilemma for me. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is retired defensive end Chris Long, who played 11 seasons in the NFL. He spent a long time with the Rams, won Super Bowls with the Eagles and Patriots, and back-to-back years, he's one of only five NFL players to win consecutive Super Bowls for different teams. He can now be found doing some work on The Ringer and the Green Light podcast on Chalk Media. We talk about his very first football practice. His parents, including Hall of Famer Howie Long, didn't want him to play. They thought he'd be soft and quit. That didn't work out. Uh, how he knew he needed to be successful at more than sports because he believed his achievements on the field could never reach his dad's. How it was tough for him to watch the Rams get moved and succeed in L.A. and no longer be a part of the team. The rules of engagement on social media and how they frustrate him and how he struggles to interact with people as an everyday guy and not be seen as someone different and treated as someone different. What he would like to see Tom Brady do next. That's an interesting one. Why he donated his entire salary to charity in 2017. Um, he also says, golly, a really endearing number of times for a giant football player. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this. That's what she said. So I've been trying to have this guy on my podcast for quite some time. He is driving, which is often the case with people that are so busy that I finally wrangle them um, and they're on the move. And so I'm so glad that he found some time for me. He's a very busy man. Let's start at the beginning, Chris, because you're born in Santa Monica, but you grew up in Charlottesville. What age were you when you made the move? Well, I was eight years old and my dad had retired from uh, the NFL. He played 13 years with the Raiders. And so, yeah, we lived in L.A., and, you know, he kind of picked Charlottesville out of a couple options uh, back east, including, I think, outside of Boston was one because he's from Boston. Uh, and then uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, and uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. And he wanted to get out of L.A. It was a hectic time, hectic place. Didn't want to raise kids in L.A. So looked back east, decided he didn't want to go back home. Uh, up in, in Mass and came down to Charlottesville and Wilmington. He had visited both places, kind of. Um, my mom and him had been both places and kind of loved them. So it, 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 it was almost like a coin flip, and we ended up in Virginia. That's crazy. Do you think that growing up there has affected you a lot? Do you internalize that as, as a part of the person you became? Yeah, I, I have no idea who I'd be if I grew up in L.A., uh, for better or worse. I have no idea. But, you know, 
you think about some of the differences in how you live. I mean, uh, Los Angeles is a big city. The weather's always good. I'd probably spend less time outside if it was. If it was, I'd be at the beach, not in the woods. And uh, and Virginia is a place not a lot of big cities. Uh, Charlottesville is kind of on an island among a lot of you know counties. Albemarle County is a beautiful place, uh, but it has a city in Charlottesville of fifty thousand people and more like a hundred thousand in the county it's a it's a university town i guarantee you i'd never gone to the university of virginia i'm glad i did right. you know i probably wouldn't be have the hobbies i have and wouldn't have met all the people i met so i think everything in life happens for a reason uh you know i think that gets worn out sometimes but in this case i feel like it worked out for the better because you know my path uh in football and life uh, i'm pretty happy where i'm at so you played basketball, lacrosse, baseball, and football. Was it just not an option in your house to not be an athlete growing up with a Hall of Famer dad? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because my parents never pushed me towards uh, any one sport, certainly not football. They didn't want me to play football. Um, and I, they always told me this story of first day I go out for peewee football, or not peewee, I was a little bit of a late bloomer anyways. It was like 11, 12 years old. And I go out for uh, football. Maybe I was 10. And I, I go out and... They tell me a story about the the night before. They're like, they're like, what do we do? What do we do? You know, I, I don't want <laughs> so to send really them like out to practice into tomorrow. You not doing it. Wow. Yeah, they 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 didn't want me to play because my dad obviously knows as well as anybody the uh, the uglier side of uh, yeah. sport you play your whole life. I mean, we have a different perspective than people that that maybe didn't play in a league or whatever and have to go through the grind. And you know, whether that was to keep me safe or he just knew it. You know, even if you're successful, it's going to be a long, hard road. He also, they thought I was too soft. <laughs> so <laughs> they were like, listen, here's what's going to happen. We're going to let him go out tomorrow, and um, he's going to get his nose bloodied, and he's never going to want to <laughs> go back, and that'll be that. We don't have to deny it because if we do, it's going to make him a headstrong kid, want to go out and play more. And I went out, and I guess I liked it and kind of stuck with it. That's great. Um, did you like football more than the other ones, or was it just clear after a certain amount of time that that was your best sport, the one you'd be recruited for and have the most success at? Yeah, you know, uh, I actually, it's funny, you know, basketball I was never that good at. I was like a six man on a good team. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these guys going to lie about my high school basketball <laughs> career like a lot of my teammates and the pros did. We do have a uh, fact checker on the pod at the end, so anything you lie about will be revealed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. Well, good luck digging up these uh, six-man yeah. stats from Central Virginia, uh, circa 2000. We, uh, so I, I was kind of, uh, you know, I was an athletic kid. I was, you know, shot blocker, like defense guy, but not, you know, not a guy who was going to pull up from 20 feet uh, with regularity. So basketball wasn't really, you know, in the equation. Uh Baseball was my favorite sport by far. I had a disagreement with a coach and took a year off, mm. uh, actually two years off, in the middle of high school and played lacrosse and then came back and played baseball my senior year. So I, I really loved baseball because there was no better feeling than hitting a home run. I was actually pretty good at it. Uh, couldn't hit the curveball as well, and that certainly, that certainly becomes an important detail as you get older. And then kind of as all this was going on, I was unsure about my spring sport, football, kind of showed itself to be my strength I was coming into my own as an athlete and I was a big kid I was you know 240 250 and I'd lift all winter you know after basketball practice I would spend an hour and a half in the weight room uh really working myself and burning the candle uh on both ends and eventually just kind of settled on football for me so you know moving to Charlottesville and being away from where your dad played obviously helps but he was a known guy a hall of famer like the face the everything how did you feel growing up with that and did you even if they weren't putting pressure on you did you put pressure on yourself like if I'm going to do this I want to be as great as him and get as much accomplished as him well you know um when you're in high school it's not even um a conversation about the trajectory of your career when I was in high school I didn't know I was going to be a real good football player. I uh, I was a slow starter at it, and I didn't really get good until the middle of uh, high school. And, and what I knew right off the bat, whether it was Little League baseball, whether it was you know um, youth baseball, travel baseball, basketball, whatever, people know who your dad is, and uh, it kind of puts a target on you. So mm-hmm. any successes you have in football, uh, you know, the, the rumblings are, even at a high school level, and it's pretty obvious you're, you're damn good. I was Gatorade State Player of the Year. But, you know, what I kept hearing was, you know, he's only getting a scholarship because of his dad. 
you know, and then, uh, you know, if, if, if you show up to a game, you know, that was everybody's go-to was, you know, you know, you bring your dad to the game, this, that, and the third, and then you go wear people out and they don't have anything to say. But, you know, I think that it made me a lot stronger. Uh, you know, there are certainly, um, you know, positives to having a dad who has a lot of athletic experience and obviously the genetic makeup to play at the next level. But there's also a, a side of it where there is pressure. Um, everything you do is under a microscope. No success is good enough. My successes would make um, pretty much any other kid's life. Um, <laughs> but they were never a big deal. And yeah. I think that helped grounded me as well. Like, For sure. So although I had to deal with that BS, it was nothing I'm doing special. My dad's been there and done that. And that's not a, a thing that made me feel bad. It kind of it kind of kept me grounded and made me realize that, you know, uh, if I'm going to make a mark in the world, athletics aren't really enough because, uh, you know, good luck going to get in a gold jacket. Yeah. That's a great perspective for sure. Like this isn't going to be it for me because it's not, not going to be, it's not going to feel like enough, even if it would be for someone else. Um, yeah. You've got brothers, your, your, your younger brother, Kyle Long just retired, uh, was with the bears for, for his career. And, and Howie Long Jr. is that an older brother? I assume the junior is usually the oldest. No, uh, uh-uh, he's the youngest. He got the, the he got the big dog. Name. <laughs> he got the name, uh, a scouting assistant and personnel assistant for the Raiders. So you know, try as they might to say that it's more than sports. You you still you still got everyone headed the same direction at yeah. some point, but in yeah. in different ways. Um, all right, so let's talk. I, I don't Virginia. know why that was either. I mean, uh, really? you know, Kyle obviously he had no choice. He's as big as a doorway. So yeah. you know, the first thing you don't think oh, I'm going to be an accountant. With that, with that body and that talent, you know, for me, I was, uh, you know, I'd say I was talented, but uh, I certainly wasn't the best athlete in the family. I'm probably the third best athlete in the family, and then, and then Howie, who was a really great athlete, just wasn't, you know, a huge dude. So, you know, college lacrosse, uh, high school quarterback, real good, but he ended up in football just because he really enjoyed it. So he went out and started at the bottom in in, in Oakland and found himself. Honestly, it was hard to to afford. To, the lifestyle in the bay you know how that price right. of living is there and was working his ass off and he was like you know what i'm gonna, I'm gonna pop over and and get on the front office side and sell some tickets so he's been out there doing psl stuff in vegas and yeah we all found our way into football yeah and now you guys have a, an even better excuse to get to vegas a couple times a year Go out yeah and check out yeah i don't get to ride on the boat like the draft picks yeah, no doing that I'm, over. But. I'm very, I'm very intrigued by that. There are so many jokes. Uh, there are funny jokes, and then there's the potential unfortunate optics of a bunch of white dudes sending black players over on a boat to uh, take over. Yeah, ownership. you know what? There's yeah. that. Uh, so they seem to a, walk into <laughs> yeah. uh, metaphors like that, don't they? <laughs> and they do that a lot sometimes. Yeah. Um, all right. So you go to Virginia. You are just all world. Just, I mean, all American unanimously. You won the award for the top defensive end in the nation. You were a finalist for the Lombardi, the Lot, the Nagurski. In fact, I think you were the winningest of that best defensive end award, uh, the most votes ever for a winner in its history. You were 10th in Heisman voting. So, like, you just ran the place. At that point, are you surprising yourself even with how great you are? Or after your uh, high school career, did it feel like just the next step? No, I mean, for me, even in the middle of uh, college at Virginia, I don't know that um, I really thought that I was going to be that good, nor did I care to be that good. I wanted to, my dad and my mom um, always instilled in me, their whole thing was, whatever you decide to do, I'll be proud of you if you do it to the best of your ability. And since this was, you know, whatever you choose, you work your ass off and you do it that way. And, you know, I don't care what it is. It doesn't have to be sports, but I went down the that path. And I said to myself, until I finish in college here, I'm going to work my ass off and try to be the best football player I can be. But I did not have interest really in playing in the NFL until late in my college career when mm. it was kind of in my face that I was pretty good. And uh, there was even a time where I thought to myself, like, I'm not going to, even if I have an opportunity to get drafted, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go do it because there's a lot yeah. I want to do in life that has nothing to do with football. And I saw what my dad's career did to his life and it was for the better, but he worked, you know, to provide for us out of a situation where he had nothing. And my whole thought process was seeing how hard that was. Like, why don't I go follow my dreams? And my dreams probably weren't football. I didn't know what they were, but then it kind of works out naturally. And, you know, junior year, I was pretty good. I got back like a, 
first round grade so people were telling me to leave and uh, i said to myself well i really like my teammates and i'm enjoying this a lot you know i don't have any bills to pay because i was lucky enough to to have a dad who made it like a lot of college football players whether your uh, dad was a pro football player a ceo or you just have enough money to live you know you're not thinking i need to go grab some cash right now so for me i stayed back uh and a lot of people were were questioning that decision we had anthony poindexter on the staff who's one of the best college football players i ever saw uh, came back his senior year, would have been a top-five pick towards ACL against NC State and mm. never had the career that I think he could have had. I think you'd be mentioning him with, like, the Ed Reeds and, and Sean Taylors of the world. Um, but I talked to Anthony, and he was like, hey, listen, man, you, you got to follow your heart if that's if you want to come back. Uh, I don't regret coming back, even with everything terrible that's happened. I'm proud of myself and this, that, and the third. So I decided to come back, and uh, I turned that bottom of the first round grade into like a top five grade, and it was it wasn't the most stacked draft class, so you know it actually turned out to be a good year if you're trying to go higher um, to come back. And you know Jake Long went first, I went second, uh, Matt Ryan went third, and then it was McFadden, Vernon Golston, Glenn Dorsey, that kind of stuff. Really, the best DNs in that class uh, were Clayus Campbell, obviously Cliff Averill, and myself. And, you know, on paper, it wasn't the, the best defensive end class, but we, we ended up having really good careers, all of us. So uh, it all worked out. Uh, the only thing that didn't work out so much coming back senior year was probably, and I loved all my years in St. Louis, but, you know, not having an opportunity to start out on a good team that, you know, yeah. everybody's seeing you play and, and you're, uh, you're winning. Uh, because when you get drafted high, it's going to be a long road. You mentioned the Jake Long Chris Long back to back, and then your brother Kyle gets in the league a couple years later. What's the best story of those mix-ups? Because people would mix oh, up man. names all the time. People would yell at Kyle across the field about Jake, and you're not even related. Yep, it's tough, uh, you know, and and it's understandable. I do that with other athletes with the same last name, of course. Until it happened to me and my brother and Jake, and we all used to joke about it individually because I played with Jake for a minute in St. Louis. I didn't realize how, how annoying it could be. I mean. <laughs> It was just annoying as hell. I'm like, come on, like, you're really going to walk up to me and stop me at a restaurant and then call me Jake? Or, you know, you're going to walk up to me drunk as hell at a bar and be like, hey, Kyle, hey, Kyle. I, I had plenty of anecdotal stories where, uh, you know, people just were really in-depth with this fantasy that I was someone else, even referencing specifics, um, acting yeah. like they were Bears fans, you know, like I'm a huge Bears fan. So I'm going to walk up to the guy who's 265, 270 pounds uh, and has a full head of hair and call him Kyle Long, who's 330 and looks like Mr. Clean. It doesn't make sense. So, but after a while, to be fair I just though, this, you this, like that difference is like the equivalent of a five foot five person not being able to tell when someone's six five or six ten. Like it, it's all yeah, the same to yeah, them at guess, that point. Like I the guess. average person's like that guy's huge, must be him. <laughs> I guess. I mean, it's. It, after a while, though, like, especially if somebody was drunk, I just had this policy, and I'm nice to every fan I meet. But if you if you ask me, my one of my biggest pet peeves with fans, if I have one, is, hey, who are you? You know, because I, <laughs> I believe in manners. So, like, <laughs> even if you came up and introduced, introduced yourself as, like, Bob, and you said, what's your name, to get the information you needed, right, I, I, would, right. I would think it was slick, but I would also at least respect your manners. But, like, the tap me on the shoulder, hey, who are you? <laughs> it makes my blood boil because yeah. if you don't know and you're just coming up because I look like a pro athlete and you're trying to pin it and then you're going to ask for an autograph, like, do you really want my autograph? Like, yeah. I don't need you to like me, but if you don't know I who I am, just keep it moving. I, I, yeah. I'm not yeah. self-important. Now, I would I would get a lot of, you know, Kyle, Jake, whatever. You're Jake Long. You're Jake Long. And I'd say I wouldn't explain it to him. I'd just be like, nope, you got the wrong guy. You sure? <laughs> I hear, I, you know, you, you look a lot like Kyle Long, you know. <laughs> no, um, you got the wrong guy. And eventually the, the conversation would just stop. So that's oh. about the only thing that I, I, I don't I don't play ball with. with fans. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. Uh, it's so, just a hundred thousand times. You're like, all right, dude, if, yeah. you, if you don't get the name right, I don't think I, you care that much. And nor do yeah. I care if you care. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a nobody. Right. And I think part of it, too, is that people just it's really hard to empathize if you haven't been in the same situation you know, it's like when people with like 12 followers are like, I don't know why you respond to people. And I'm like, well, I get like thousands every day. And every once in a while, I feel like clapping back at someone on social media who's being an asshole. Like, no you idea know, how I this works. I don't want to speak for you, but like, I feel like I'm pretty regular. 
so I hold myself to regular standards, which gets me in trouble sometimes because of what you're saying, because the minute you do respond or whatever, or even put too much stock in a stranger's opinion, whether it's positive or negative, that's the problem with social media. You know, it's not just the, if you can't block out the trolls, it's, you know, you are literally being lifted up by the opinion of somebody who you wouldn't take their advice yeah, in life sure. if you met them because you don't know them. And that's not to say you're any better than them, but you just don't know them. Yeah. So you don't know what the, you don't know what the value system of somebody liking your posts are. Um, and, and somebody trolling you, like, I think comes from a place for me, like where I answer every idiotic comment because like, Hey, I don't think I'm better than you. Let's talk about right. this. You wrote me a message. And then you I'm going to respond to it. Too much time yeah, doing it. Exactly. Well, and then the worst is if you get if you basically like stump them and they don't have a response, they'll be like, "Why are you even wasting your time responding?" And you're like, "But I I thought yes. that's the point of what we're doing here. Yeah. Like, isn't this what yes. we're supposed to be doing here? Is engaging and having like, do you want me to just never respond to anyone? It's a mess. Anyway, we could just I, we don't need to go down. If, the I have of- the same pet peeves though. <laughs> I mean, like if if you're gonna if we're gonna if we're going to see eye to eye and, and have a discussion, I don't mean ideologically eye to eye. I mean, like you think of me as a quote unquote celebrity or professional athlete. Now I'm not going to act like that. And I'm going to engage with you. Then at the end of the conversation, if you don't know what you're saying, then the response can't be, well, you're talking to a nobody. Like yeah. It's like a cell exactly. phone. Like what, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about the Rams. You were there for a long time and, you know, you were one of the stars. You represented a, a team, and and it must have been heartbreaking to be a part of something that got moved, and then also to see it get moved and have this investment in it and and the success that comes with it. You obviously went somewhere else and had great success, but was there a part of you that had devoted so much time to the Rams franchise that to see it succeed and go somewhere else was tough to watch from afar? Yeah, it hurt, and this sounds funny. Um, when you start somewhere new, no matter if you win or lose, you're always the new guy, and being in one franchise for eight years means a couple things. I mean, first off, I had the, the security when I got in um, as a high pick. Um, so I had a contract for a few years. You know, my first six years went really well. 50 sacks, six years, you know, team captain, that sort of thing. You know, went on a real good streak there with 40 and four and then ended up on IR two years. So for me, these were all on bad teams. We never won more than seven games. Um we uh, we never played prime time. Nobody really knew who you were, and that's not why you play. But you, you miss out on respect and some of the some of the court of public opinion. That's like, well, I've never seen this guy play. Who is he? When you get to a new place, not only coming off injuries, but a big market that they never care what was going on in St. Louis. That can that can suck. And you know, part of me having been somewhere for eight years and made all those relationships and made all those plays in obscurity, kind of wished that I had an opportunity to do it when they turned the thing around. But I love St. Louis so much, it would have really sucked to have been a part of the move because St. Louis fans got felt left out in the cold. And I would have been in a bad spot. You know, I got to play football in L.A. with people who undoubtedly are very excited, but you had people in St. Louis who thought that they were kind of robbed there. And I had a real connection with those fans. And, I, and, and we may not have won much, but they always showed up and they were loyal to me, and I'm a loyal person. So not making the move, even if that meant not being a one-franchise guy my whole career, which was my goal my entire career, you know, there was a silver lining to that, which is I never had to be in the weird position of playing in L.A. Yeah. And, yeah, so I do miss it. I still talk to a lot of my buddies who play in in uh, L.A. who are still there, you know, Brockers, Aaron Donald. Um, I still kept in touch with a number of guys when they made the move. I never felt angry uh, because I was cut as a cap casualty. I got it. I was hurt two years. My tape sucked. I'm trying to play hurt. That's my responsibility. So being released, when Jeff Fisher called me, I said, don't even apologize, man. It's all good. This is cool with me. Like, maybe it'll work out for the better. And, uh, and yeah, I got to go some new places and win some championships. But I would be lying if I said it was ever the same in a locker room uh, even with the special locker rooms we had as the guys were fighting through one of 15 seasons, two of 14 seasons, playing their asses off and really like spending years together. And that was that defensive line we had in St. Louis. It was very good. Robert Quinn, William Hayes, myself, Brockers, Aaron Donald, Nick Fairley, Eugene Sims, a ton of really good players, Kendall Langford. I never played on, on in, in a room like that again, even with some of the heralded groups we had. Yeah. 
you played a season for the Patriots, won a Super Bowl, played two seasons for the Eagles, won a Super Bowl there as well. It feels to me, and this is just from afar, your memories of the Eagles win feel more special to you. you your connection to that team yeah. and that accomplishment. Is that just because that's a huge thing for an Eagles fan and one of many for the Patriots, or was it about the team you were on? Well, no, I, I, it wasn't just about the locker room. The locker room was great in both places, and I think that's what gets lost in New England. You know, people have varying opinions on, you know, is it fun in New England? I, my teammate got in hot water, Lane Johnson, for saying he'd rather have fun than win a bunch of championships. There's people that look at New England like it's very authoritarian. I had a great time. I had never won before. That landing spot, and by the way, the last two years I picked between in free agency, never having that free agency to pick somewhere since I was a junior in high school, it came down to being a picking game. And I, first <laughs> off, I took a, a, a Washington visit, and I'm glad that um, I, I passed on that. Uh, I, I almost took a Dallas visit, canceled on that the last second when Bill told me, hey, sign. But it came down to Atlanta and, uh, and New England. Of course, that's the team that we yeah. ended up uh, down 28-3 to. Three to. Uh, in the third quarter of a Super Bowl. And I remember sitting there um, on the sideline and saying, this really just comes down to pick and wrong. And I'm a moron. <laughs> I played eight years, never won. The, and the uh, in my ninth, of, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I, I picked the wrong team. And, and of course, that changed and everything else is, is history. But New England was special to me because individually I had never won. We had a special group. We're number one defense in the league. Uh, scoring defense through the year. I uh, had great teammates, guys that I love, in Ninkovich, McCourty, uh, Danny Amendola was there, you know, a bunch of my buddies, uh, and they are truly good men in that locker room. But you don't live in, in the city. I lived in Foxborough. I never spent a lot of time in Boston. Uh, the scheme wasn't great for me, and that's a big part of it and how I enjoy football. I was playing a three technique, um, not really my thing. And when I got to Philly, we were the first the fashion with which in which we won that Super Bowl with a quote-unquote backup quarterback, all the injuries we had, being picked to be towards the bottom of the league and winning the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback, the first in the city's history, being an underdog in all those games, and playing a bigger role individually. You know, we played in a 4-3, and that's why I went there. I wanted to finish my career doing something I knew how to do well, and that was play three yards in the backfield in the run game and, and, and rushing the passer. So, Having grown men come up to you, 65 years old, 70 years old, and saying, I waited my entire life for this, and they're crying. You know, Pat's awesome organization, awesome fans, but they're used to that. And uh, Philly will always be that team. We will always be a part of it. You know, five so championships cool. down the line, if they get there, we'll always be the first. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really it's really awesome. Uh, you mentioned uh, playing for the Patriots. What's something we should know about Belichick that we don't? But he has a great sense of humor. I mean, some people allude to this. It's desert dry, um, <laughs> but it's a sense of humor. <laughs> At the end of the day, we all have different types of humor we enjoy, and his is very dry, and, uh, and he would make me laugh on a daily basis. But when it comes to Bill, I always say this, the thing that separates him from other coaches and which makes him the greatest of all time is he can walk around the field in a circle and coach every position at a superior level than the position coach who's probably dedicated decades of their lives coaching that position. Mm. And Bill just knows football comprehensively at a level that no one else does. And that's from the situational stuff to the building of a roster, being kind of de facto GM to having coached different positions. And, you know, um, he just masters all that. And you look at coaching now today and you've got coordinators, you have, you know, special teams coaches, you have some guys who are supposed to be motivators. There's very few coaches that do everything, and he can do everything. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody can argue his greatness as a coach now. Whether you want to play for him, I think probably you have to actually do it to know that because it's kind of like an argument with, like, a spouse. It's actually more frustrating when they're disappointed in you than when they're mad at you, and I feel like that's yeah. kind of like what Belichick would be that person that you just don't want to let down. You just don't want to let them down, even if they're not going to be the screamer, although I'm, I'm sure he screams at times as well. Well, I had uh, I had a number of coaches that I didn't want to disappoint. And, and, you know, even Jeff Fisher, who people give a lot of crap, you know, that was somebody I never wanted to disappoint because I felt like he cared about me as a person. Doug Peterson as well. 
you don't want to disappoint Bill for that reason, but you also don't want to disappoint Bill because you don't get a lot of second chances in that organization. Mm. And um, (laughs) if he sniffs a problem, he's going to put that fire out before it gets going. And, you know, that's for some players an adjustment uh, where they're used to having leeway in New England, whoever you are, they can get another you. You know, they shipped off Chandler Jones the year before, a couple days before I got there because they decided, you know, here's a guy who's a Hall of Fame type rusher. We don't want to pay him. There's some issues, whatever. We don't need him. There's only a couple people we need. We'll get pass rushed by committee with a bunch of guys that are going to have five, six sacks a year. And, uh, you know, he's done that in a bunch of different instances mm-hmm. where he just decides, hey, I can win without a person or, you know, the, the, the scheme is much bigger than the player. The organization is bigger than the player. And he keeps things strictly business in, in a really interesting way. So I, I believe that it's not, it's not so hard when he has to make decisions that are tough and personal. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, sort of being a team of of pieces that can be moved in and out, Tom Brady is the one piece that has not been moved in and out. And this feels like the first time that we're really potentially uh, talking about him leaving. You personally, having played with him, having watched him for years, do you want to see him leave and go try to do some, you know, some of what he's done somewhere else? Or you want him to stick with with the Patriots or be done? I'm kind of a, as a sports fan, I want to see chaos. (laughs) <laughs> like I like I like parody. I like interesting news stories, and I think that Tom, in another uniform, if he so chooses to continue playing, will give him a great opportunity to, to prove himself and Bill, respectively, uh, prove himself as well without Tom and Tom without Bill. So I th- I think it would be an interesting thing as a football fan. I think that if you're looking at New England, there's a couple ways you can look at it. Listen, that was not a great team this year, and they still won a bunch of games. They're going to have a hard time keeping, like, 20 free agents uh, in place. Offensively, we talked about Carson not having a lot of weapons. That was ridiculous attrition. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of Tom didn't come out there with a lot, you know, in the beginning of the year. You were depending on a guy who, you know, quite frankly looks like he's lost his mind. Um, and I'm not being funny to trot out there and carry your offense as the guy stretching the field uh, and a guy who's been hurt, but a Super Bowl MVP and Jules, uh, some other pieces like the first first round wide receiver Bill's drafted in his tenure in New England. Uh, that means there was an issue there from a personnel standpoint. And I think since that Super Bowl that we beat him and we put up, you know, 500 plus yards, I think Bill decided if I'm reading between the lines, I'm never losing a big game again because of my defense. And I, I thought that there was maybe an overcorrection from a personnel standpoint, dumping everything in the defense. Uh, and, and Tom was left with nothing to throw to, you know, and for a number of issues too, with the offensive line getting dinged up, losing Gronk was enormous. Devlin getting hurt. Your uh, running backs use them like receivers. That's about what you got in your passing game, them and right. Jules. And, uh, and I think Tom, getting a new exciting start. Also, the fun part is like trying to pinpoint where he might go because it's a mystery. He plays everything so close to the vest. Mm. If he does leave New England, he could get paid. I know money's not an issue, but I know pride is an issue with him. It has to be. He's been taking haircuts for so long up there and probably wants to be um, you know, recognized for his greatness. For sure. And for he, sure. he wants to prove people wrong. So you got to the Eagles after the Pats. You managed to be a part of their first Super Bowl ever. You make incredible ties, it felt like, with the teammates that you met there and became a part of that history with, uh, particularly Malcolm Jenkins. And you made a lot of news as the first white player to sort of acknowledge and be a part of Kaepernick and Malcolm Jenkins and a number of other players' anthem protests. You didn't raise your fist, you didn't kneel, but you did support Malcolm, and you were willing to openly talk about it. It's something that a lot of people, I think, talk about, the need for white allies in the fight uh, for racial justice, and it's understandable that many players would be reticent about joining and not feel like they want to have to take on the flack. Why do you feel like you were in a position to handle whatever criticism you might get from teammates, from fans, from the league? Well, I never got a, a single criticism in the locker room. That's the thing about um, locker rooms, and I can't paint a picture of every player's ideology, whether they're white or they're black. 
because there's a lot of black players who didn't kneel or, you know, um, Mm -hmm. raise the fist or even join in any uh, semblance of protest. So I think there is a, there is a level of like, you have to understand these players in the league. It's a culture where that's not welcome uh, from an ownership standpoint, from an office standpoint. They, it sounds simple. And I don't know if I would have, I like to think I'd done the same thing when I was younger, if I wasn't making as much money, but I've gotten what I want out of my career. Um, so even if I was convicted on these things earlier in my career, one, there was never an opportunity to, to show that. I mean, I had my Twitter, you know, I, I tweet about these issues my entire career, but you know, here we are in a situation where somebody needs to step up. that looks like me in some form or fashion. And I'm going to be one of the ones that steps up and, uh, I've always been one that's had a hard time keeping my opinions to myself, but you know, now, Hey, look, people are looking at y'all. Like people are looking at players that look like you in the NFL. And I can understand why some guys who are younger don't have the security I have from a job standpoint or the, the attitude of like, I've done what I want to do. Um, I can understand why maybe some of them don't speak up, but I wasn't going to be the one, especially with everything that happened in my hometown in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I wanted to raise my fist, honestly, but I thought I'd get made fun of cause it's like a black power symbol. So I'd be like the white right. guy doing the black power yeah. symbol and people <laughs> would think like I'm a nerd. Um, so for me, me putting my arm around Malk was my way of raising my fist as well with him. So, yeah. um, you know, there are players in our league who have experienced single, you know, first person view or would it be third person? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> some of the issues that are plaguing our country that we were talking about and without getting too deep into everything, you know, I think a lot of fans have the opinion that if you're a millionaire and you're black, you're not black anymore from a standpoint of like, you have to deal with what goes along with being black in America. And it was disheartening to see the way a lot of people tried to use the flag as a shield, use the military as a shield and not talk about these issues. Everybody loves it. When players are real, you stick a microphone in players faces for decades uh, as the media and people watching your home say, I want the real answer. Like, don't give me any canned stuff. And then when players give you real answers and they talk about what they're passionate about, you're upset. And I'm talking about, you know, people that have not you, Sarah, or the, the media, but people watching at home. Now it's time to shut up and, and dribble. Um, you know, Hey, we want players to be charitable. We want them to be community minded. Well, the communities, these players came from, are not the communities that, you know, community work isn't always handing out turkeys. Like, it can be messy. It can be, you know, showing that you care about your community through trying to transform legislation or, you know, shed light on issues that might be uncomfortable for you. So I totally was supportive, and I didn't want to be supportive in silence because that would make me fake, knowing that I have the opportunity I have to, to talk about it. Yeah, the messiness, I think, is the part that, that trips people up. And that's why Kaepernick, at times, being a, a not the perfect messenger, made it easy for people then to ignore the actual message. And and people, even people who maybe think that they actually are on the right side of things and want to make change, if they don't become uncomfortable while seeking that change, they probably aren't really understanding how serious we need to get about some of this stuff before it's actually going to move the needle. And so and it's, you know, so, it's okay to be on Like, my thing yeah. is, and we get caught up in this thing too much where people that I believe, you know, I don't want to assume too much, but I've looked at your Twitter. You probably believe a lot of the same stuff I do. I think sometimes on our side of the fence, we, we do all this and then we say cut everybody off that thinks differently and don't even try to have a conversation with them. Well, so what's the point? Because if I'm making a gesture or talking about an issue and only the people that believe the same thing as me hear it, yeah, because I've cut everybody else off or I've said they're not even worth trying to change, then there's actually no growth. Like there's actually no growth of this crowd that's on the right side of things, in my opinion. Yeah. So, you know, that's been a challenging part for me is a lot of times the hardest stuff, I don't mind hearing, hey, white guilt boy, you know, whatever. <laughs> my favorite, that's my favorite one. Yeah, I'm guilty to be white. My, my yeah. son's name is Waylon. Um, I can't dance. Uh, you know, I like what I, I love who I am. I, I, I don't dislike white people. I've heard that before. I've, I've heard white guilt. Like, what am I guilty about? Like you're guilty because you don't want to talk about it. That's the way I look at it. I can take all that stupid stuff. What I can't take though is people on my side of the fence 
that really seem to be confrontational about little details of how we get it done. And that can be the most disheartening thing is some of the infighting. Not the people that I know I'm going to fight with. Anyways, I signed up to, to, uh, to, to go engage. head-to-head with yeah. people that disagree with me. But when somebody on my side of the fence, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of, there's a lot of messiness comprehensively in this entire thing. And I think that's, that's what sucks about it. And that website we mentioned earlier makes it even harder because you could argue with somebody you agree with on that website. Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty much, and pretty I much spend, any social media. I spent media. a lot of time doing it. Right. I spent yeah. a, lot, a lot of time doing it over the last couple of years. So I don't mind the mean, you know, direct messages. I'm a big boy. I don't mind people in my mentions. I haven't had a single person come up to me and tell me they have an issue with the way I think because I think it's more intimidating. But you, you got people in your mentions all day talking shit. And that doesn't bother me a bit. What bothers me is some of the lack of progress because of uh, some of the people thinking there's zero wiggle room for my way or the highway type. How do we get this done? And uh, that can be disheartening, too. There's a really amazing story of a woman that was raised in the Westboro Baptist Church and people from Twitter started following and engaging with her and showing up at her protests and trying to talk to her about why do you believe this? You know, why do you think your parents raised you with this? And eventually she came out of the church and does a TED talk now about how instead of people yelling and screaming and fighting her, they wanted to get to know her and understand her and then talk her out of why she would be doing these hateful things. And it's a perfect example of the things we maybe don't try enough. We kind of consider people lost causes, but it takes a lot more work than just arguing over the internet, which unfortunately is it's the in-person you know. stuff. And, and yeah. to me, like I've, I've had, a, I've had a hundred conversations with people that think slightly different. I'm not, you know, somebody listening might be like, why are you having conversations? I'm not talking to all right people. You know, I'll let somebody else do that, you know, in a friendly manner. But for me, it's somebody with like a policy difference or, you know, that would be a disqualifier on the internet. Like I'll at least have a, let's talk about it. And I'm going to try to tell you why I think that I'm right. and, And you might have a, you know, some thinking to do about it. Or maybe you haven't heard everything or, you know, I, I've had plenty of those conversations in person and I never see them occur. How many times on the internet, you know, I've had people in person be like, you know what? You're right. I never thought about that. People I've known yes. a long time. How many times has that happened on if, the internet? Almost never. <laughs> right. how, yeah. How many times have you heard anybody <laughs> on the internet literally say I was wrong? <laughs> right. Yeah. Unless they're yeah. about to use a corp or lose a well, sponsorship or something like, yeah. hey, well, and or even, about it a lot. even on a small scale, just having a yeah. conversation back and forth like, oh, you know what? I was looking for that fact that would disqualify my point. You gave it to me, so I was wrong. I've never yeah. seen it. Never. Well, I, I talk about it on the pod, too, because there's all these studies into the psychosomatic responses of engaging in, in person where your your body is actually reading someone else's eyes and lips and body movements, and you are trying then even if it's subconsciously to find a connection point, even with someone you're arguing with. And we lose all of those online. We don't hear their yeah. voice. We don't see their face. And we're, in fact, not trying to connect. And then that makes the the engagement sort of difficult, even if you think that you're open-minded and, you, and you're willing to be proved wrong. You're probably not. And you're probably just going to get more and more dug in. Um, and that's why it, it's a problem how much we do online but i think you know it's the same reason why spouses you know like my wife and i should not argue over text yes it's like it it makes we don't figure anything out and like we can't read each other Mm -hmm. like we lose the human connection on an obvious level but we lose it on a communication (laughs) level which is what you're talking about and and it becomes the new normal just type at each other and by the way Good luck having somebody focus on more than 280 in character length. Like, that's the right. max out exactly. right now in society. Yeah. So I hate that. I, I hate that, you know, a lot of times you'll tweet something and, you know, people start bitching at you about a point you didn't even make. Right. Um, or they won't read the context because there's, there's multiple things you said. Yeah, the other day my husband sent me a bitmoji, not even a text. It was a pic, like a stupid cartoon of him that said thanks for nothing about something. And I thought he was serious. And I stomped up the stairs. And I had all this. like, I was kidding. And I was like, oh, well, I was annoyed. And I thought you were being serious. Um, <laughs> That's uh, the way it works. Yeah. Wait, let's talk about, you know, you, um, you gave up your entire salary in 2017 to charity. It was part of you were honored with the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year Award in part for that. You gave it to a bunch of places. Why was it so important to you? And why did you maybe make the statement of saying my whole salary versus a lump sum? Did it help people really understand what you were doing and the investment you were making? Well, one, I want—I always wanted to uh, 
see how much I actually liked football because it's always been in doubt for me. <laughs> it's not like it takes away from from uh, the way I play. I mean, like the way I play is going to be balls to the wall. That's it. That's all I know. And working is all I know. But, you know, from a standpoint of you took the money away, I kind of wondered what that would go like. Now, I didn't have that in the pipe for like a long time or anything. Um, I just knew we were talking about a lot of hard issues that I was interjecting myself into. And, you know, it is so easy for me to talk about issues when it comes to achieving equality in our country. It's easy. And like, even to get me praised, everybody used to be like, Hey, thanks for being so brave. I'm like, this doesn't seem brave from where I'm sitting. Cause all I do is when people walk by me on the street is tell me how, Hey, I agree with you, man. Thank you. Like there's actually a lot of, love there and the people that that are going to cuss me out behind a, a computer i don't give two shits about them so right. it was all positive now for me i need to put some sweat equity in like how am i getting action behind my words and you know i was working with the players coalition and you know working with this time especially early on like cap eric you know malcolm everybody was on the same accord and um we were attacking different angles, you know, from the criminal justice system to education to um, a whole host of, of economic uh, job fairs, that type of thing. And what I was drawn to and where I thought I could make the biggest difference was educationally, because I saw, I still see as messed up as our criminal justice system is, and I'll always try to be involved in that sort of thing. I think that if we can fix our educational system while we do it and we can walk and chew gum, like we can change the country um, and the planet. And I think that certain populations have been given so much less opportunity uh, and, and kids don't have a choice where they go to school. And that's mm-hmm. the most messed up part. You know, I've worked with, I work with adults and, you know, in a lot of my charitable efforts, a lot of our programs, but kids are a blank slate and, you know, and kids don't have any agency over what they're doing. And so uh, you better believe where you go to school and the opportunities you have sculpt your future opportunities and who you become as a person. And so uh, I wanted to get involved in the educational side of it. Uh, I decided, hey, I'm not making a ton, a ton of money. I think the way we can get fans energized to donate and match, because that was the whole point. One of the uncomfortable sticking points to me was, I don't want to look self-important you know, I certainly am not doing this like for the clout or something. There has to be a reason to donate a million plus dollars. Cause like most people that do that, there's a bunch of super rich people doing that every day around the world. Like, um, I'm not the first, I don't deserve that much credit, but where we do deserve credit is energizing fans. And the reason it was an entire year salaries. Cause I think that spoke to fans to say like, I'm doing this for free. It's something I love. Right. Um, Please get behind it. Yeah. Um, and fans got behind it. And Philly fans matched my efforts, uh, our efforts at the foundation. So great. And we doubled our investment in the cause that, that you know, went to organizations like Summer Search, that went to scholarships, that went to a whole host of things. And we did more in 2018. I had to keep a little bit of my paycheck. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it achieved the desired outcome, which was getting people more involved uh, in the Philly area uh, and football fans as well. And looking at this thing like this is an exhaustive, you know, social justice has become this like stigma to a lot of people where they hear it and they run. Well, like if criminal justice is too messy and you're afraid to get involved, like fix our school system. And there's plenty of people working in the criminal justice space as well. I've lobbied for for bills before with Malcolm in Harrisburg. Uh, I've worked on cannabis legislation decriminalization stuff. Uh, we've done bail system stuff, um, looking at some of the shortcomings of that stuff. But, you know, the educational stuff is a slam dunk for me. Yeah. And you're right. People who want to turn their nose up at issues they don't care about, but then also don't get invested in, in everyday things that they could could help with either are clearly not, not a, they're, they're just holding that up as a reason to hate or to, or to do yeah, yeah. I know we're running out of time, so I have a couple speed round questions for you. Uh, what's the best part about being retired? Everything. There's almost <laughs> nothing that was better as a football player. The only thing that's better as a football player is you get your ego stroke more. Yeah. And I don't even know if that's a good thing. Um, that's, 
yeah, that, that's, that's about it. Game day is, is the only thing I miss. And honestly, yeah. game day when the weather gets cold, because when I look at those guys out there sweating their asses off week one, two, and three, and there's nothing on the line, that didn't do it for me. But watching a playoff game in Philly did. Yeah. Uh, what's the one thing you're happiest to be done doing regularly, like ice baths or getting hit all the time? or? Hmm. Getting dressed for practice um, and, and warm-ups. Oh. I hated practice, but I didn't hate practice because of team periods. Like, I, I did not mind that at all, but all the everything around it. You know, you get out of meetings, you're hurting, so you got to get in the hot tub, you got to get taped, I got to get all my broken fingers taped, I got to, you know, warm up my strained calf, and, and then I got to put on all my stupid practice stuff that has to look exactly right because it's a team rule. And I got to do it in 30 minutes. Like, <laughs> that was something that just always annoyed me. And then you get out to the field and, if you like football enough to like team period, then you got to wait 30 minutes again through this entire stretching process. And by now I'm cold, <laughs> you know, like I've, it, it, I just want to get out there and go. So I, I don't miss everything that yeah. went around practice, like meetings, you know, getting ready for practice, all that. But you didn't take a super long time to just chill and travel and do whatever you are part of a digital sports network with uh, content driven by athletes and celebrities called Chalk Media. You do a podcast with them. You work for The Ringer. I don't believe you were ever one of those athletes that said, I'm never going to be the media, and then immediately became the media. I think you've always had a good relationship with the media. But why did yeah. this feel like something you wanted to jump into right away? Well, I mean, like, I knew I'd never want to be one of these. Like, I, n- I never wanted my dad's job. My dad's on, like, NFL Fox Sunday and, like, He's got to travel to the West Coast every week, you know, since I was, golly, I don't even know how old. Um, and it looked pretty hard. Um, you know, the, the money's good. He's made more money after he played than, uh, <laughs> than while he played by far because they weren't making money like that back then. So I kind of have the, the luxury of deciding to do what I want and knowing that I'm opinionated um, and I also need something to do every day. I need structure in my life. That's the way football players are. We've had structure and something we've had to wake up to and, and pressure pack jobs for, you know, decades now, if you include high school and, um, and college, because you were, if you were working towards a professional, you know, in a professional direction, there's always pressure. So now it's like, if you get out and you don't have anything going on, that's where I think you get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see guys dealing with that. So I, I thought, Hey, podcasts are cool. It's not a lot of pressure unless you, you get good. So the, it's a good news, bad, bad news <laughs> yeah, thing. Right. I kind of don't like a lot of people listening to my podcast, but I'm told that I'm supposed to grow it. <laughs> so, you know, if nobody's listening, it's low pressure. And uh, if people pick it up and it starts getting popular, then uh, then that's a, a good congrats. problem to have and, right. and yeah. uh, cross that bridge when you come to it. But I'm enjoying it. It's a way to keep, you know, exercising a lot of the same habits I had when I played studying answering the bell and like having something to go do the hustling. Like I don't have a lot of time as you know, how, you know, stringent some of this stuff is like, and I bit off more than I could chew my first fall. Honestly, I had like free podcasts doing Thursday night football with Kay Adams and James Coe. So I was worn out at the end of the regular season, just like I was when I played minus all the aches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, it's, it's a very different kind of tired, but it it's tired. It's like your brain's tired of talking and thinking and trying to remember everything. Um, all right. So Super and, you're, Bowl. and you're tired of like, you're tired of like, Hey everybody, this is my opinion. Right. Like, <laughs> I, I believe it or not, I don't want to do it every day, but yeah. some days you're told, Hey, you're growing a YouTube channel. You're growing your podcast. Like you need to be you regular. You need to have two yeah. pods a week. There's no like Thursday. I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> or I'm feeling like, who gives a shit what I think? Right. Um, you still have to, like, talk, which sucks a little bit. Yeah, I like talking probably more than anyone on Earth. And if I've got a highly questionable around the horn, then my radio show, like, for the hour after my show, I don't want anyone to talk to me and I don't want to say anything. Like, I'm just like, I'm done yeah. with the brain. I'm checking out for an hour. Um, no, all right, so- I, I hear you. I, I feel the same thing. Obviously, not as much pressure as your job. Cause I've, <laughs> I can see you yeah. on TV. So we got that NFL paycheck uh, to fall back on. So uh, I got to keep. Well, well no, I'm just you know. There's more people watching you than listening <laughs> to me. So, so maybe one day I'll be there and I'll have to I'll have to deal with that pressure. Yeah, we'll I'm throw you in around the horn. We'll put you in a box. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> it looks fast. Um, <laughs> um, okay, Super Bowl speed round. Did you have any superstitions uh, before games or things that like even for a big game? Honestly, it just became it became a music thing. You just listen to the same song. So for me, it was uh, "Immortality" by Pearl Jam. So 
that kind of became the the Super Bowl playoff run song. And uh, I listened to it a lot in New England and uh, listened to it right before I ran out. And then uh, randomly walking out before a Super Bowl practice or before a playoff run, we're walking out for a practice and me and LeGarrette Blunt, the two guys from the Patriot, the Patriots are walking through the tunnel at the link and there's music playing and it's like a Thursday and uh, the radio, they never play that song on the radio. Yeah. And sure enough, it's on wow. the radio. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be a good playoff run. And, like, Design. it was just <laughs> me and LG in the hallway, so it was eerie. And That's that became great. kind of the, the, the song for me. That's great. Post-game, what's the difference in the celebration with the Pats and the one you had with the Eagles? The Eagles was a bit better for me because the post-game party was a, a bit, like, more intimate. Uh, Pats' post-game party was a lot of people. Uh, it was, like, free access almost to, like, people that bought tickets to the game. Oh, which wow. is great if you want to spend time. I want to spend time with the fans too, but I had this big group and I was so stressed because I'm trying to wrangle everybody and get people tickets into the party and whatnot. And that can be tough when there was like 5,000 people in this big convention center. And then the Eagles one, they had a little bit more private. There was a fan side, which was awesome. But then you go in this back room, it was a little more private. And honestly, I think the Pats one had it too, but I had too many people to get back there. So right. it, it just was bad luck. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you've got, I'm sure, plenty of stories that you can't tell, but is there one story you could tell from your time in football of a guy, you know, partying before the Super Bowl or getting caught with the lady and jumping out of a window or, you know, one of those crazy ones that we hear about <laughs> years later? Well, there's certainly one that uh, I have that I'll probably, when I tell it in five, ten years, you can, uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say I, I kind of broke it on Sarah Spain's show, but. Uh, there you go. You know, there was my dad always tells a story that that I liked was was him and Lala Zato um, missed the bus to the Super Bowl, and um, <laughs> they had to take a cab through like standstill traffic. And this is like an '82 or '83, and they got out and walked like the last mile. Now this might be one of those we had to walk <laughs> to school and you know right. in, in the snow kind of stories, ways. and maybe it was a, a hundred yards, but. I know that they had to walk and there's nothing worse than being late. It's like a recurring nightmare of mine to be late to a football game or it was my entire career. I can't imagine being late to a Super Bowl and they ended up on time, <laughs> but they had to kind of power walk in there. Is this a good warm up? That's all it was. They just wanted a little extra. Yeah, they just, I probably was, it was good to get the lactic acid out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Ah, my first Spanish Inquisition after Terry Jones died. R.I.P. Terry Jones, one of the founding members of Monty Python. Uh, Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. It's a mean question. Yeah, it's really mean. Really mean. Um, (laughs) Physical graffiti? Okay. Okay. I like that. That's the first one I've heard. First thing off the top of my head. Yeah. All right, question number two. What habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Being stubborn. <laughs> That's useful for sure. Uh, not great in the marriage, great for succeeding in work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if, if your wife's stubborn as well, it cancels out. It's there like, you go. Uh, oh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Golly. A collection of, of little ones that nobody knows about, and that's, uh, yeah, I fail all the time. I fail every day. I thought you so, meant children. <laughs> I, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's my success. Yeah, I mean. It sounded that's, like that's you, meant you had like a bunch of illegitimate children running around. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, my two kids are legit, 100%. You should see them. Uh, they unfortunately for better or worse look like me but yeah they're very um, cute <laughs> yeah so so yeah i mean uh, i i count that as success now if you fail at being a dad on something small that's kind of part of the rite of passage right yes of course um, yeah yeah you, you know but a it, collection of little failures, failures you want to is stay what away you from. <laughs> uh that's great uh number four have you ever been in a fist fight yeah uh, outside of football yeah are you usually yeah you get a lot of no's I've only got a couple no's. I've never been in a fist fight. So I, I, it's okay. I think... It's not like it's not, it doesn't, you don't have to, but yeah. All right. I would imagine you win most of those. Yeah. I mean, no, there's no winner. 
There's never a winner, <laughs> even if you win, in my opinion, <laughs> at, at the age of 34. So hopefully uh, those won't be happening anymore. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Hmm, hmm, hmm. Can I get outside the box here and say a peregrine falcon? Yeah, for sure. My first animal. Yeah. I love that. Why yeah. specifically that animal? I'd have so much range. I love, like, I, I really like riding in a helicopter and seeing, like, the aerial perspective. I'd feel completely safe being yeah. a falcon. That'd be awesome. That's a good one. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Golly, probably I have a number of, I mean, from running out of gas five times a year to, um, <laughs> I mean, not five times a year, running out of gas probably five times in the last in decade life, yeah, yeah. to, you know, pulling off with the gas thing connected to the car to, <laughs> I don't know. I, I made an entire list of embarrassing little things like being in a big lecture hall in college and your chameleon air ringer going off. Nice, um, nice. Things like that kind of stick with you. You know, that, that, that feeling never goes away. Um, I, gosh, I, I don't know. I When you're an NFL player, you get made fun of by your friends so much. Right. It's hard right. to be embarrassed. It's it's tough to, like, feel it anymore. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, well, we talked about, I mean, my how I, uh, how I budget my time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Twitter.com is a big part of that. And taking it off my phone is, is a nice step in that direction. All right. Well, when we're done, I'm going to send you my podcast with the guy who talks about, you know, digital – uh, diets and how to figure out what what's useful to you and, and wean yourself off. I'm liking might, this diet so might, far. Might be useful. <laughs> a couple of days, but I'm liking it. Yeah. Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Commissioner of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so corny, but just respect each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's funny the last year or so. Almost everyone has said something about, you know, be kind or be respectful. Just it's respect just, each other. I think the world we're living in right now makes it's, that, that That's an umbrella that we can enact a lot of change under. Yeah, for sure. Uh, two left. Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Most scared I've ever been? Um, probably, I, I was scared for 11 years. I was scared of failure. You know, like, so you you're never... You're never not afraid as an NFL player. I don't care what anybody tells you. And if you're, if you're not, you should be. And not to hit anybody, but just, you know, because you could be embarrassed. You talk about being embarrassed. There's some guys who they're worst embarrassed. You couldn't even ask some of these guys you have on the pod what their most embarrassing moment was because some of them you know. And that's, that's <laughs> right. failing in, in front of millions and millions of people. And that's yep. what can happen to you every Sunday. Maybe when I flipped uh, on the New River in West Virginia, we flipped uh, um, a boat, um, you know, a raft. We were doing a rafting trip, me and my buddies from back home. And I flipped in, a, in like, a, I don't know what they call these things, an eddy or something, a whirlpool. Yeah. And I got sucked under for a while. I thought I was going to die. Um, nice. Yeah, that that would be. And then I saw a barracuda on vacation once. It was like six feet, and it swam Ooh. by me. And I probably peed a little. <laughs> that probably didn't help. I don't know if that moves them away or brings them closer. Evidently not. Uh, <laughs> They're into shiny objects, so I, yeah. I hear. And, of course, my wife had a shiny ob- or a shiny oh, bikini on. Oh, and they, they warned us not to get in the water <laughs> without any shiny objects on. And I, a six-foot barracuda swims by, and I'm oh, like, man. Meg, what are you doing? Oh, no. Um, finally, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, loyal friend um tolerable <laughs> that's good that's not good. tolerant i mean i'm tolerable and tolerant, tolerant, but just yeah. toler- tolerable because if, Toler- if you're tolerable these days because uh, there are so many just people yeah. like i can't even yes if, if you're tolerable that's <laughs> a good start i feel like a lot of people start. even in social circles that that like each other secretly just can't stand being around each other and so if i'm tolerable that's that's that's, that's a good, good thing start. uh thank you so much for coming on uh and i'm supposed to ask uh is there anybody i should have on the podcast that you would love to hear that you think is oh yeah crazy um, interesting? bo allen bo allen okay yeah on it um thanks yeah. so much chris i know you're busy and i really really appreciate you giving me the time no problem sarah i appreciate it that's what she said It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. 
this week was going to be about shitty onion rings where the onion isn't cooked enough. So you kind of you bite through that delicious, crispy fried stuff, but then you can't get your teeth all the way through the onion. And then the whole steaming hot onion slides out of it and you burn your mouth. And then you have this empty shell of the fried part without any onion in it for the other half, which is really disappointing. But it feels kind of silly to complain about that or really anything else right now. I'm sure you are also still reeling about the death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and seven others. And he had a complicated legacy, which I've spent all day writing about and which you'll be able to read soon. But there's no denying the tragedy of his death and the lost potential and his young daughter and her promise and the other kids and, and people lost. So I think no complaining today and no snapping and no feeling good about anything either afterwards, just a sort of acknowledgement that uh, with these moments, we are reminded that life is finite and we never know how much time we're going to have. And so we should be kinder to each other and we should spend our time more wisely. So a little bit less complaining this week for me and a little bit more being grateful for the things that I have. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, you can tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to That's What She Said in the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, review, leave a dilemma in your review, and hopefully I'll get to it in a future podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 